Welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. Yav Zajerjevich here, your host. So today we've got an episode where uh, we actually did a book club episode on the book Irresistible by Adam Alter. Fantastic read. All about social media, technology, addiction. James and I had a great conversation about it. And it it went down the typical rabbit holes of social media and, and tech and how we can't put our phones down. But I think the the heart of the conversation really came down it really in the middle of the podcast when we started talking about children and how this technology and us not being prepared for how it's impacting kids, how it's impacting young boys, how it's impacting young girls. And how do we as parents of young kids and future parents of young kids, et cetera, how do we make sure that we protect our children from a technology that we don't know what the consequences are while still making sure that our kids are not the weirdos and stifling their social development? which is incredibly difficult. So the, the conversation was awesome. We dug really deep into that. James had some internet problems on his end, so we had to cut, cut the conversation shorter than what we wanted to. But again, I think it's a great expose and some of the thoughts that the book is trying to bring to the forefront and, and just forcing us to have that conversation, which I think is incredibly important. So enjoy the podcast. I think you'll love it. Give us a five-star review on iTunes and uh, check it out on YouTube, Manhood Pod. Uh, you'll, you can see the link below and also get the book in the comments below on Amazon. Besides Tupac and Biggie, which is what we were just talking about, we got a book to talk about today. Yes, yes. Irresistible. James, Irresistible by Adam Alter. I think that's how you pronounce it. A-L-T-E-R. Anyway, I got this book while you and your wife were visiting us in Nashville. I remember. Actually, I was And you refused to get yourself a copy because you had a gift card to Barnes & Noble that you did not have with you. I didn't. It took me a while to to get that. And uh, it took me a while to actually be in a Barnes and Noble and have my ducks in a row to get the book. Mm. Well, you got your book though. We finally read it. This was back in August when you visited us. So it's been a while. Long time coming. We've been, we've been working on Irresistible for like a hot second. Um, also for folks watching, welcome to like the first like or second YouTube um, YouTube podcast, whatever. Got a whole setup happening. Got a camera. Got the mic, got the stand, got everything happening over here. So I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to actually have the video portion of the podcast. All right, so irresistible: the rise of addiction, technology, addictive technology, and the businesses of keeping us hooked. So before we dive into the book, just general takeaways, James. What did you think? General takeaways. I mean, the title and the subtitle pretty much say it all. Just like the world around us is just so heavily screen focused. I mean, we're on these apps that have all these algorithms that are just created to keep us hooked. And while these screens have great things that come behind them, I mean, we obviously do things and stay connected in ways that we can never stay connected. But now, the downside to these things, we don't know how that's going to affect us over the long term. And so I think the book did a great job of really going into both the positives and a lot of the negatives behind uh, the, the technology and the algorithms behind the technology that are created to keep us hooked. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, the the fact that you and I are looking at each other, you're in Houston, I'm in Nashville via a computer and some cameras, and we're able to record this and put it out into the world is is like a freaking miracle. Absolutely it's, amazing. It's yeah, it's unbelievable. But the 
the other, the flip side of that coin is what does that do to us from a societal standpoint? And I thought this quote from the book was really interesting where he talks about the definition of the word addiction. And the quote says, addiction originally meant a different kind of strong connection. In ancient Rome, being addicted meant you had to, you had just been sentenced to slavery. Mm. Right? Yeah. Wow. And it, wow. it's fun to look at the etymology of those wor- words. And how they've evolved over time, but yet at the same time, you know, technically you're not a slave to your phone and to Facebook or, or whatever social media, because you, you technically quote unquote, have the free will to leave, but right. how much free will do you actually have? Um, and, and, and that's, there's another, there's another quote and I want us to get back to this one, but he talks about the problem isn't that people lack willpower. It's that there are quote, there are thousands of people on the other side of the screen whose job it is to break down that self-regulation you have. Mm. These companies make money off of you using their product. And there are entire departments dedicated to making sure you use their product constantly. And that's the, that's like the big overarching theme of this book as I'm reading it. It's slightly terrifying because you look through it and you're like, man, this technology is so incredible in so many different ways. But at the same time, it's so absolutely terrifying. Right, right. Um, I know there's a documentary out now. I forgot the name of it on Netflix. It goes into a very similar thing, but I'll start watching it. And this book does a much better job of actually going into it. Um, the Social the social just, Dilemma is what you're talking the, about? Yeah, The Social Dilemma. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Did you watch that? I did. I did. I watched the whole thing. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't get into it. I mean, maybe because I've read so much content about how it works. It just was not, it didn't draw me in, honestly. It just didn't draw, it just didn't do it for me. It just wasn't interesting? It just wasn't interesting to me. I mean, I knew the points they were trying to get to, but I felt like there was too much dramatic effect and not enough like real realism to it. Yeah, but you got to make it consumable for like the average person listening or watching. I just felt like they overdid it, though. I was just like, okay, well, all this you know scare what, James? tactics, what's actually going on? No, no, no. You know what, James? It's a self-defense mechanism you've put in place because you don't want to come to terms with your own addictions to social media. Hey, I'm addicted. I'm addicted. It's, ir- <laughs> it's, irresistible. Okay. it's irresistible. Okay, okay, okay. So you're addicted. What would you say you you spend your personal time social media-wise on like the most? Honestly, just, oh, YouTube. Straight up YouTube. Yes. YouTube's uh, a beast. I was going to go and say Instagram just mindlessly scrolling, which I think is an issue, but I don't do that anywhere near as much as YouTube because I have this craving for knowledge and learning. So whenever I'm bored or whenever I have a dead moment, even when I'm driving, I might put it on a video. Obviously, I'm not watching the video while I'm driving, but I'll put it on a video and have it like it's a podcast, you know, so turn it on. Then before I know it, I look down in my, my monitoring app and I've got three or four hours of YouTube watching for the day. Just on my phone. Not to mention if I'm on my streaming device because I have access to watching on YouTube on TV now or if I'm on my laptop. Mm. So that's a lot of hours of just vegging out on YouTube. And so it so gets beyond the would you consider YouTube a social media though? It's not really. Well, in some ways it is because they have ways to engage and like and comment and things like that. But I don't really use it as a social media. I'm just using it to download information into my brain and, and try to get better for myself. Yeah, you're just consuming. But the way that they have structured it with the algorithm and getting you hooked into it, the, the type of media they have on there, of course, but they, they do really try to put it like an Instagram or like a Facebook with the, 
the constant scroll scrolling down of the page and it's an infinite loop and it doesn't really end. Yeah, I don't have the quote for that, but I know at one point he specifically talks about how YouTube discovered the uh, next up and how yeah. Netflix did it and how it like revolutionized their platforms completely. I think I'm getting so bad on YouTube now that the next up doesn't really work for me anymore because I've probably seen that video or I know the tricks <laughs> now. I know like that's not going to be that good. I can tell. I know the I know the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. debate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because you? of how much what, what would you say? Ooh, what's the big ones? I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn because of work, like constantly prospecting mm-hmm. and looking and posting content, trying to get engagement, trying to get in front of folks, et cetera. So I don't know. I don't know how much time I would spend on LinkedIn, though, if it wasn't for work, if that makes sense. Right, right. So so I'm hesitant to put that in the category. Spend a lot of time on YouTube, a lot of videos, a lot of learning, kind of similar to you. Do podcasts count as a social media? I, I definitely I think I would take podcasts out simply because there's no like there's not really any liking, any commenting in there. It's, it's, it's different. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time on podcasts, uh, a whole lot of time on Reddit. Like Reddit is the absolute cesspool of the internet, but there's so much good stuff on there as well from a usefulness standpoint. Pretty much no time on Facebook. I don't know the last time I logged into Facebook besides Facebook Messenger. So yeah, I would say Reddit, LinkedIn, YouTube. Um, again, hesitant to put LinkedIn on there just simply due to the fact that, you know, it might be uh it's it's more of a work thing. I don't know how much yeah, I don't know how much time I'd spend on LinkedIn if it wasn't for work. Um but it was interesting. So another thing he talks about in the book is in 2008, adults spent on average 18 minutes on their phone per day. In 2015, that went up to two hours and 48 minutes. Wow. That is insane. Wow. 18 minutes Man. in 2008. I mean, really, what did you have on your phone other than Snake in 2008? Hey, bro, look, I had well, a, I had they, a, they I had a Palm. You had the iPhone. No, I had the iPhone in 2009. But I had, but you I had were flipping a Palm those Trio. Before that. What'd you say? You were flipping those iPhones before that. You had the, the iPhone. I was flipping now. iPhones. Oh yeah, yeah. Fun, fun story for everybody. Uh, for everybody listening, if they, if they don't know, I used to back when the iPhone 3G came out. I realized pretty quickly that people were selling their iPhone, or sorry, the 3GS came out. People were selling their 3Gs for like 180, all in on Craigslist, and they were doing it because back then you would, uh, you would sign a contract and you would pay 200 for the phone. And then you were in the two-year contract. So people were just basically trying to have the money to pay for their next iPhone. And I saw that and I saw an opportunity in the marketplace. So I looked at it and I said, oh crap, if I go buy a phone for 180, I can go to eBay, got on YouTube, taught myself how to unlock iPhones in about two or three days. I uh, started unlocking them because back then you could only get them on AT&T. And then I started flipping them on, on eBay for like six to $900 a pop. And then I realized, hey, I speak German. I could sell them in Germany where they're going for even more. So then I started flipping them for, you know, 1100 12, 1300 a pop in Germany. So I made like, I mean, I think I made like eight or nine grand in two months mm. over summer break profits. And then all I did the following year was while in college, I would just flip two of them a month and I was balling. Like there was nothing you could tell me. I had so much money. Uh, I just needed to keep enough in reserves to be able to buy the next uh, piece of uh, inventory. And then Apple signed a deal with Verizon and T-Mobile and Sprint and the prices just plummeted and the, and the spreads went from like, you know, making 800 to a thousand a phone to maybe a hundred or 200 and, and it stopped being worth it having to meet up at McDonald's 
you know, off of Craigslist with with a couple stacks in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting a little a, dangerous. Yeah, that was a really disappointing ending. You should have had an ending like where you just invested the profits in GameStop and made twenty two million dollars or something like that. That's what no, I wanted no, to hear no, out no. of the ending. I, <laughs> no, I was like twenty years old. I, I blew it on booze and and other stupid crap. And a trip down uh, to, to Waco. Did, yeah, I definitely did not invest. Actually, yeah, that would have been the summer. I, yeah, when I came down to Waco to visit you, that was the summer I was flipping iPhones. If you recall, I was actually looking for some on Craigslist while I was down there. Made the trap go boom, and then Waco, Texas. Bro, I realized there was a difference. This is just a good uh, entrepreneurial lesson for everybody listening. I realized there was a difference in the Craigslist prices between Knoxville, Nashville, and Memphis. So whenever I went to Memphis, which is six hours from Knoxville, I would buy something in Knoxville because I knew it was cheaper. I would list one in Nashville because I knew it was more expensive than Knoxville. In between driving from, uh, from Knoxville to Nashville, I would sell it. I would meet up with somebody there. And then I, I would have the second one that I bought in Knoxville and listed in Memphis. By the time I get to Memphis, I would list that one. So I would make like a flip, make like a couple hundred bucks just flipping off of Craigslist, driving from Knoxville to Memphis and back. No, oh, that's dope. You knew yeah. the markets. You know them. <laughs> Thank God I grew up in like a good family with, you know, a strong male figure. Otherwise, I would have been a drug dealer. I would, I would have figured it out. Sounds like you've been pretty good too. Yeah. You've been uh, on Vlad TV telling your story. Yeah, I would have been on Vlad TV. Should have should have bought GameStop back then at forty dollars a share, which I think right now it's at forty six dollars a share. So I would have I would have had to sell last week, man. <laughs> okay. Where where were we on Irresistible? <laughs> well, we just talked about what did we just talk about with Irresistible? Uh, oh, the screen time. Eighteen minutes yeah, yeah, versus about three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever I think the longest I've ever seen was like five and a half hours on my phone, and I was like, holy crap, what did I do today? Well, you know, since I've been at home a lot, I, I got Corona, you know, disclaimer. Wait, you tested positive? Yeah, yeah. I've had Corona. I've been in bed nonstop since. Hold on. Today is what, the the ninth? Yeah. You told me you were feeling like crap the other day. You didn't tell me you tested positive for the Rona. I was, I was, even before I tested positive, I knew that I had Corona because my coach had it and oh, his no. girlfriend had it. So yeah, oh, no. I'm official. Oh, so no. I'm in my quarantine. But How yeah, so- uh, I mean, I feel fine. I'm just kind of lethargic. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you got it from your coach, but you didn't get it from your wife like five months ago. Right. But the thing is, that's what's so confusing about this. It's like, maybe I had it at a different time, but then that raises the question, well, how did she not get it during that mm. time period? So who yeah. knows? Maybe my immune system was just like silver bullet status back then. And now it was lower at this. I don't know. I don't know how to really explain it all. Maybe I had the antibodies and didn't realize it. I have no clue how to explain it all. But to my point, I've been on my screens a lot more. So I've seen like six hours before on mine. Just from all the YouTube videos. Cause like if I'm if I'm cooking in the kitchen, I'm playing YouTube videos. I might be cooking for two, three hours. I got videos on the whole time. Not to mention my just regular uses of other phone apps. So So what what feelings do you experience when you see six hours of usage time i feel like i'm like wow i'm not being productive that's how i feel and because this is not the only book that i've read about like technology and being addicted and how we need to be more minimal with our technology so it's like a slap in the face because i used to be very disciplined and i know adam alter spells out it's not all about willpower 
But I used to have a system in place where I didn't check my phone for the first hour of the day. I really didn't check it till noon. Then I was only on for 10 minutes. Then I would check it again at 5 p.m. And that was it. I didn't check email throughout the day. I'm not attached to the notifications. I don't have to clear every single notification that comes up. So now when I see that, I'm just like, wow, I've gotten very far away from my original system. And a lot of it has been driven by me marketing my business and doing things like that. And so I want to go back and check and see how things are doing. But then because these apps are engineered strategically to get us to stay on them, I might get on to check how my business is doing and then just end up staying on mindlessly looking at what's going on in the NBA, looking to see what's going on in track and field, looking to see what my family's or friends are doing. And I just get hooked into it. Mm. So I find myself getting on with good intentions and ending up like, oh, how did I end up on here 45 minutes later? Or oh, I forgot to actually check for the reason that I ended up going on to the app for. Mm. So it's so interesting. It's crazy. It's funny though, because these, these tools, I mean, think about it. Like I'm, I'm taking notes on an iPad right now. Like these tools are useful because what? Amazing. I'm just saying like the fact that you can write on something that it's not even a writing utensil. Correct. It's not even real. It's just a piece of glass. Right. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, but the fact that you, so it's, it's all these things who, that were promised to us to make us more efficient and make us better. Yet for some reason, your first thing was you feel like you're not being productive. Right. So there's like this inherent feeling of guilt that you have over spending six hours on your device. Yeah. Because I think now we're smart enough to know the difference between when we're being productive and when we're just mindlessly consuming content. Well, it's funny because he has another portion in the book, speaking of drug dealers, he has another portion of the book where he talks about all these people who help develop Facebook, Twitter, whatever, all these different social medias, how they don't allow themselves or their children to be on there. Yeah. And the quote he has on there, it seems as if the people producing tech products were following the cardinal rule of drug dealing. Never get high on your own supply. Yeah. I thought that was one of the most compelling parts of the book and it was in the prologue. Yeah. Like that is so telling that the founders of this type of technology won't even let their children use it for for minimal amounts of time because they know how addictive it is. That is the scariest part to me. Yeah. Because you know how bad it is if you won't let your kids use it. And the other thing, you know, we've talked about this. I forgot, uh, I forgot Jonathan, whatever his last name is. I forgot what his last name is. Um, he's been on several different podcasts, Joe Rogan, Dak Shepard, et cetera, talking about his book where it's like the, the, the destruction of the American mind and children and, and how kids in particular who have grown up on social media have basically become psychopaths um, because they don't have the empathy aspect to their relationships because they don't get to develop it. Mm. So, so one of the quotes on that is humans learn empathy and understanding by watching how their actions affect other people. Empathy can't flourish without immediate feedback and it's a very slow developing skill. One analysis of 72 studies found that empathy has declined among college students between 1979 and 2009. They're less likely to take the perspective of other people and show less concern for others. The problem is bad among boys, but it's worse among girls. According to one study, one in three teenage girls say that that people their age are mostly unkind to one another on social network sites. That's true for one in 11 boys age 12 to 13 and one in six boys age 14 to 17. You want to talk about all the problems we have in society, politically, socially, emotionally, mentally, 
it can all go back to the fact that we've all lost the ability to be empathetic to each other. Wow. And how suicide rates amongst girls, in particular, young girls, have skyrocketed in the last 10 years. Yeah. Which is crazy because, I mean, you think about the stereotypical girl in high school and they have the mean girls, like the mm -hmm. Lindsay Lohan movie when we were kids. Like now there's a whole new platform dedicated where these mean girls can go to another level. And, and these girls have to deal with that on a daily basis. So it's, just, it's kind of mind boggling. Have you actually experienced, I'm around kids a lot because I do some coaching. Do you feel like you've noticed differences in children you interact with? Uh, I'm not a coach like you, so I don't see them all the time, but I've definitely noticed a difference in like family members and their friends and the people around that where I'm like, whoo, buddy, I would really hate to be in middle school in 2021. Yeah. And when I see that, I always wonder, is it just because I'm so far removed from that age that I see the differences or is it because there are actually differences now? Because I find that the kids I interact with, their, their attention spans are like nothing. They can't focus for anything. And I figure I'm just like that old guy at times, but I'm like, is it because of the advent of social media and just the constant forms of pleasure that are brought up in their lives where they never had to sit still? They, I mean, people are giving their children iPads and phones to keep them occupied. And I really struggle with when I have children, if I would allow them to have that much freedom with their, with their uh, technology. Will I be like these Dude. Uh, execs, these tech execs who don't let their children have it at all? I just question it all the time. Dude, okay, so Tam, that's a good question right there. And I think that's probably one of the most important things we can talk about here on this episode. Tamara and I have talked about that a lot because we're so conflicted about once we have kids, what do we do? Because you don't want to ruin your child. But at the same time, you also don't want your child to be the right. weirdo. Because exactly. making your kid the weirdo is so devastating for them their entire life. I mean, between ages two and five, the social development they get interacting with other human beings is basically going to dictate the rest of their life. And you need to make sure that they are socially 100%. competent humans. So what do you do? And how do you do it? Because the other end of the spectrum is, I mean, boys today, according to several studies, what they use technology for is excessive video games and excessive porn usage. And both of those are detrimental to young minds. Okay. I'm not talking about grown adults wanting to play video games or, or indulging in porn. Those are two, that and an 11, 12 year old are two different creatures. Might as well be. Um, and what girls are primarily using it for is comparison, incredibly toxic comparison and incredibly mean bullying. And mm -hmm. when you don't have that face-to-face, -face, like it's really hard to be an asshole to somebody when you have to stand in front of them and see their reaction. Whereas if there's no immediate reaction on that and you can just do whatever you want, right. what's the consequence? What's the feedback loop that's going to teach you that that's not okay? So where do you draw that line? I don't know. Have, have you guys talked about that at all? We talk about it a lot, honestly, because, I mean, if, if we're babysitting or if we're around any kids and we see their interaction with, uh, with technology, we wonder, will we be those parents? Because there's no doubt that it gets exhausting to be a parent and you make decisions that you 
wouldn't think that you would make when you're exhausted. So there's no doubt that you're going to be tired and you say, hey, just play with this. But when you know the long-term effects mm-hmm. of how that will affect them when their, so- their socialization, you think differently. And so, I mean, we didn't have all this technology when we were growing up. We just went outside and played. Or we might play with the Super Nintendo. We might play with PlayStation for a limited amount of time, but we weren't spending all of our waking hours on this type of technology. So I definitely think there is some moderation that can be baked into the, into the system. Because um, like you said, you don't want your kids to be weird. But Courtney and I, we talk about how we want them to be around other kids a lot. We want them to be outside playing a lot. And yep. we don't want them to just be vegging out on this type of technology. So there definitely has to be systems in line. And one of the big things is at what age will you give your kid a phone? Because now I feel like it's getting younger and younger. Mm. I got a phone when I was a sophomore in high school, and I feel like that was earlier than my sister got it. And so there's a reality that, yes, if these kids are involved in extracurricular activities, they will need to be in contact with you, but they don't have to be in contact with you when they're when they're nine or 10, because what extracurriculars are they involved with at school at that point? Um, so, but nowadays their friends might have them at nine or 10. So then are they going to be outcast and ostracized because they don't have a phone? They can't communicate with their friends at school. So then they don't have friends because they can't communicate. What, where does this all, where do you get to with all this stuff? So that's what I struggle with those decisions like that. So how much time do you allow your kids to have them? So they're not a weirdo and what age do you give them a phone or this type of technology so that they can interact with others without being a weirdo? And let's think about this whole being a weirdo thing. Part of my fear that I have is interacting with other human beings is difficult, especially in the learning phases where you're getting maybe a lot of negative feedback because you need to change certain behaviors in order for you to be appealing for other people to want to hang out with you. Right. Okay. I mean, let's think about what is a cool person when you say, man, that guy over there is really cool. All that means is that he's pleasant to be around in whatever capacity that may be. And what it probably happened is in his early developmental years, he got a lot of feedback via trial and error. Maybe he had uh, more successes early on that created a positive feedback loop that taught him or her how to act to be popular. When you've got technology as an escape, you've got an escape that that can give you all the satisfying aspects of that social feedback loop without any of the difficult conversation and consequences of your behaviors so you never have to adjust them. There's a reason the computer nerd stereotypically is a weirdo right like i know i know for me i don't know about you from the computer correct i mean think back when you and i were growing up you know back in high school or middle school or whatever i know sports was a big thing that taught you how to interact with other people like losing as a group winning as a group so if, if you don't have that figured out and you don't learn those lessons, those hard lessons, how do you do that when you let the team down from a professional standpoint at work or, or whatever it may be? So I agree with you. I think the hard part is going to be like you basically need like a group of parents to agree like no phones until this age so that your kid is not the only one that's a weirdo. Anyway, Irresistible, good book. I'd give it a thumbs up. Go check it out. We're having to cut the conversation a little bit short because because of internet issues. But how, in general, I think we we got some good good thoughts out there. Any any parting words? Uh, well, I just want to talk a little bit about the difference between when they talk about substance abuse versus okay. behavioral addiction. I just thought that was really comp- compelling because I think a lot of people think of addiction in terms of substance abuse, 
but not really realizing that behavioral addiction is a real thing. And it's the same thing. And that we're all addicts and the environment plays a huge part in it. And I feel like the biggest uh, story in the book that illustrated that concept was the, the GIs that were over in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, who yeah. were addicted to heroin, but then they came back to the U.S. and only 5% of them relapsed where heroin relapse is really like more like a 95% rate uh, and the, for the general public that uses heroin. Yeah. So I thought that was really crazy and um, <clears throat> really, really drove home the point that we're all subject to ab- uh, addiction if we're in the wrong environment. Yeah, I think so. For, for folks who don't know about that study, basically, once you took those GIs out of the environment of Vietnam, they did not find the need to to use heroin anymore. The U.S. government was actually terrified that they were going to have just like a generation of drug addicts coming back uh, to the U.S. And it turned out that once you took them out of that environment that triggered those behaviors, they were they were done. They were clean, um, which was uh, completely unexpected. I think that's powerful. It's impactful, James. It's impactful. Very impactful. Very impactful. Uh, any other final thoughts? Go get the book, guys. Irresistible. Adam Elter. Yeah, great book. Great book. Good great read. Book. And outside of that, we'll talk to you guys soon.